0: Good evening. Good evening. I am very excited to have the opportunity to once again open God's Word with you. And I'm very thankful for the opportunity. I remember when Amanda and I were looking to buy our house. The process began and really f- took an extended period of time. Almost three years it took us to find a place to live. Uh, It was a particularly stressful experience, not just for uh, Amanda and myself, but I'm sure uh, for our realtor, uh, our own Terry Mitchell, who was so gracious to us for so long to continue to uh, show us new properties. She would show up after church and take us to these various properties, and we would look at the houses that we were uh, going to look at, and sometimes we'd look around and just keep driving by. And move on to the next one others we would stop and participate in every home buyers I don't want to call it a ritual but everyone does it you begin to look at the property and compare it to your lists of needs and wants and I don't think it's a stretch to say that for me and for Amanda our lists didn't always line up and I feel like I'm pretty safe to say that that's the reality for most couples we have different priorities for what we're looking for in a house? For me, one of the things that was very important to me was the lawn. I'm one of those people. When we were finally able to to find a a place to purchase, I was very excited about one particular aspect of the house, and that was that it had an in-ground well and sprinkler system. Now, the grass wasn't in the greatest of shape, but that was okay. I had a water supply. I could fix this. And for the first year we were there, I really began to focus on the backyard. I weeded out all of the non-grass. And my first attempt thought was I was going to seed these empty spots. Now, I like St. Augustine grass, and you can't seed St. Augustine grass, but I was going to live with it. So I put the seed down. And in my understanding of what would be appropriate for sun protection, I buried the seed very shallowly, thinking, they're not going to sell me something that I can't just throw a little bit of dirt on and it would be fine. I was wrong. I was very excited in the first few weeks. I would come out, and Amanda will tell you, I stood in our kitchen, looked out the window, and I said, in this inflection, my seedlings... However, as they began to grow and as I began to water them less frequently, the sun did what the sun does here in Florida, and that is bake everything that is outside. And I watched my seedlings turn to crispy seedlings, and then I had empty spots in my yard again. The sun possesses an incredible power. It has the ability to grow plants, to grow grass, to grow food. But that power can also turn destructive. And the destructive power of the sun here, James uses to illustrate uh, something very important to us. In particular, the the temporal nature of this life and the things that are in this world. This is an idea that we're going to come back to this evening, this idea of the transient nature of things. How the sun can so easily burn away whatever it is. How moths can eat and carry away possessions. The last few times I had the privilege of being up here, we took a look together at the book of James chapter 1. And here we found... In James's letter, the test of trials. It comprises the, from verse 2 all the way down to verse 12. And we've seen a number of things along the way. James puts this test together so that the believers who read it both in his day and for us today, and we can run the test of trials in our lives to see if our faith is genuine. You see, true saving faith looks a particular way under pressure. We noted, bow way back in verse 2, that true saving faith responds to trials with an all-encompassing joy. James writes in verse 2 of his letter, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. And we noted then that this is not James telling us that we should eagerly anticipate trials. We should not be excited that we're in the middle of them. We're not supposed to, for example, be grinning from ear to ear because that's the response you're supposed to have when things are hard. No. James reminds us in this verse of obtaining an eternal perspective that although things are hard, although things are difficult, the joy that awaits the believer in Christ far outweighs the difficulty that they may be in at the moment. We saw in verse 3 that this testing, these, these trials produce something and that is a staying power in our faith. They produce endurance As we see in verse 4. Verses 3 and 4 tell us they produce endurance. And that endurance has a result. And that result is that we become mature. James reminds us in verse 4 that we aren't to short circuit the process of a trial either by complaining or whining. But we are to allow the trial to conform us more to the image of Christ. We are to learn from the Lord during this time. Verse 5 of James' epistle tells us that since we lack wisdom, as he says in verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to you all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. We should pray for wisdom in the midst of trials. We don't understand everything. We don't often know when we're in a trial why it's happening to us we have to go somewhere to learn this and the only place that is appropriate to go to is the Lord not only did He design the trial but He's sovereign over all things He is the true and only source of genuine wisdom and we should go to Him to find it because if we don't or if we go to Him doubting that He can do what He says that we can do, as He says in verse 6, He says that we must ask without doubting. He says, For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. We ask the Lord for wisdom and faith with full confidence in what the Lord promises, lest we become, as He says in verse 7, be the double-minded who he later identifies in his epistle as unbelievers. This evening, we want to bring to conclusion the test of trials. And as we do so, I want to make just a few reminders that the the entirety of the book of James is well worth your time in study. It is a book filled with practical Christian knowledge and tests that we can run in our life to see if our faith is genuine. James had penned this to Jewish believers who had become scattered because of persecution, but it is just as applicable to us today as it was to them. So this evening, we're going to finish looking at the test of trials by examining the attitude we need to develop in the midst of trials. Specifically, and I'm going to give you the answer, I I learned that trick from Ken Ham the other night, we need to develop a humble attitude We need to develop humility when faced with difficulties. We are to develop an attitude that boasts in nothing else but God and our new condition as His children. An attitude that understands that whatever may be happening to us, whatever material possessions we may have that may be taken from us, whatever health we may have that may turn sideways, Whatever situation of life we may find ourselves in, it doesn't matter because when you view it with an eternal perspective, we understand exactly our place in it. So we're going to examine this attitude we need to cultivate. But we're also going to see tonight exactly what we gain by passing the test. What is the end result of weathering the trials as James has explained it to us in these 12 verses. If you have your Bibles, please make your way to James chapter 1. If you don't have your Bibles and you've got your phone, you can make your way there too. I don't want to leave you guys out. James chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 9 and 12 this evening. James 1, beginning in verse 9, says, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like flowering grass he will pass away for the sun will rise with a scorching wind and wither the grasses and its flowers will fall off and the beauty of its appearance will be destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under a trial for once he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, in order to see this humble attitude we need to develop, James uses an illustration of two kinds of people. And we're going to be looking at those two kinds of people. The first is found in verse 9, and that is the poor man. Again, verse 9, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. James begins this section by addressing the brother of humble circumstances. This would have been a person who would have been economically destitute. This would have been a person who would have been unable to pay bills or buy needed items, most likely because they no longer had a source of income. And this could have been for a variety of reasons. We need to remember the context of James's audience, again, our Jewish converts. These Jewish believers would have found themselves put out of the temple by claiming the name of Christ, they would have been cut off from financial. Gains of working with other Jewish individuals they would not be able to get a loan or even buy merchandise from some. their families, who would not have come to Christ would have cut them off. We know from james 's letter that these specific people had also begun to become dispersed, so any property they may have had they may have had to abandon. As persecution had begun. All because of their new faith in Christ, they lost everything. Their position in society, their money, their homes were either confiscated by Jewish religious leaders or, again, had to be abandoned. They would have had nothing left. James calls on them, though, Uh, he refers to them as humble circumstances. These would have been people with no place in society any longer. Just like today, society would have looked down on them for being poor. If a person had money or had property, they would, be, they would have been considered back in those days and even today to be smarter people. More attractive people. People with a better handle on being an adult. Or successful. People who are motivated. These are qualities that are associated with with people who have money or have possessions. You know, in our society today. How much weight and value does society put on those who have a lot? So much so that we're willing to listen to the opinions of these people who know very little about a lot of things. Yet because they're wealthy or well-known, they somehow have the ability to elucidate on a whole host of topics. Poor people in this day and age would have been seen as evil or even committing or active in some kind of sin. That God was executing judgment on them. And that people who had money, had possessions, the Lord was clearly blessing them, so they must be godly. Well, that's a clear picture. Like That happens today too. Think of the health and wealth gospel preachers. Or the Roman Catholic Church, who themselves have obscene amounts of wealth, yet paint themselves as godly individuals, but are far from it. This would have been a false assumption, even in those days, that God was blessing the wealthy and not the poor. However, the exact opposite is true. And more often than not, when the wealthy, the lives of the wealthy, and the moral actions of the wealthy are compared to the commands of Scripture, they're oftentimes found wanting. James has a directive, though, for the brother of humble circumstances, and it isn't to repent of some kind of sin. You know, Think of Job. Job's friends, you need to repent of your sin, Job, so that God will stop cursing you. They didn't get it. James is not condemning the brother of poor, humble circumstances for some kind of sin. He is instead instructing him to glory in his high position. Well, that somehow seems backwards. What kind of high position does he have? The Greek word here translated as glory can often be translated as rejoice or even to boast. James is telling this person to boast or have pride in their high position. But wait a minute. Isn't having pride a bad thing? If it's done the wrong way, Yes. James isn't instructing this person to boast or be proud in themselves. He talks about his high position. Well, what is this? Again, he's certainly not telling him to go up and down the streets and say, Hey, everyone, look at me. I'm so happy that I have no food. That would be silly. The high position this person possesses that they are to glory in, is their position as a child of God. John MacArthur in his commentary in the book of James states it this way, this is a form of pride that even the most destitute Christian can have in his high position as a child of God and in the countless blessings that, that the position brings. See, it does not matter how the world looks down on an individual. Specifically in James's audience here. In the eyes of the Lord, if you have come to know the Lord, you possess a wealth that is far beyond anything this world has to offer. When commentators say, he may be hungry, but he has the bread of life. He may be thirsty, but he has the water of life. He may be poor, but he has eternal riches. He may be cast aside by men, but he has eternally been received by God. He may have no home on earth, but he has a glorious abode in heaven. This is the position that James is instructing the brother of humble circumstances to glory in. That he is the possessor and an heir with Jesus Christ. And this is not an exclusive thing found in James. We see, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-6, through 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed with various trials. We have an inheritance. Peter, again, underlying the same point that James is making here. It doesn't matter about the trials that we may face when compared to what is coming for the child of God there is no comparison. The blessings that await the believer the darkness fades away. John in 1 John chapter 3 verses 1 through 3 See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him, beloved Now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has their hope fixed on Him purifies himself just as He is pure. Matthew chapter 3, Jesus explaining this very same thing, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5, 5, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Paul in the book of Romans chapter 8, verses 16 through 18 says, The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed with us. We are heirs with Christ. We will be glorified with Him. There is no comparison. There is no trial so terrible that it would overshadow the joy that Paul expresses here in Romans 8. Since the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, we are to glory in it. Hey, Psalm 34.2 My soul will make its boast in the Lord, the humble will hear and rejoice. Jeremiah 9.23-24 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast of this, That he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. First Corinthians 1.31 Just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Having pride in oneself is absolutely the wrong thing to do. But boasting in the Lord and what He gives... I mean, Paul repeats it in Second Corinthians chapter ten, seventeen, but he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. This is James's admonition to the humble believer. He doesn't say pity the poor man. He instead encourages the poor man to dwell on who he is in light of his position in Christ instead of his current circumstances. Since being in fellowship with Christ is far better than anything this world can offer. One of the easiest temptations for us to fall into is to look around and see the things that we don't have. And that temptation is amplified when we're in the midst of difficulties and we see other people not struggling the way that we're struggling. And we think, why can't I be Not in this trial like they are. Why can't I have these things? This was a huge danger for believers back then and is a huge danger for believers now. However, that kind of perspective takes the focus off of what we are to glorify in and that is the Lord. Theologian D. Edmund Hubert wrote this, In his commentary on James, he, the poor man, must glory in what he has become as a member of God's family. Instead of resenting his poverty or being discontent with his obscurity, let him remember that he is a prince. He is that possessor of spiritual riches more than counterbalance his material poverty. Focusing too much on one's earthly status can cause a person to become bitter angry, depressed. And that is only amplified when things are not going well. We can fall into the temptation of allowing our emotions to overtake us. We can allow ourselves to be discontent with that glorious truth that we are children and heirs with Christ and instead... Look at the things around us and wish for those instead. We can develop unhealthy obsessions with stuff. James tells us that that is not where true value comes from, though. It doesn't come from trying to keep up with the Joneses or in fame and fortune. True value comes from one's place before a holy God. And we are to glory in that, to boast in that, to rejoice in that. So we see the poor man. Next we see the rich man. Verses 10 and 11, The rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flower and grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind, and withers the grass, and the flowers fall off, and its beauty and appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. James here now is going to get the opposite side of this principle. Just as the poor man is to glory in his high position in Christ, the rich man is to boast about his humiliation. And that is not what we would think that James would say. Rich man, you have a lot of things. You should be happy with that. Clearly, the Lord is blessing you. That's not what James says. The rich man would have been exactly as it sounds. Someone who is well off, possessing lots of money, lots of property, lots of material things. He may have been in better health than the poor man because of his ability to obtain goods. This is the type of person the world loves. The world loves wealthy people follow them around and write tabloid magazines on what they're doing. Someone on Twitter even follows their jets around. I don't know why, but he does. They would receive all the invites, the invitations to speak and give their opinion on political matters. This person wouldn't face the kind of struggle the poor man would. However, James delivers a command to the rich man that seems just as odd... As the one he gave the poor man. To glory and humiliation. We would think that he would have said glory in the position that God has blessed you with. But he doesn't. He's advocating again for an eternal perspective. He's been advocating for this since verse 2. Don't look at this world in the lens of rich, poor, poor. Things not having things, but instead look at it as the Lord and being one of His children. There's a danger in living in a bubble like the rich man. And that is they can allow pride and material possessions to puff a person up. The rich person is in danger of thinking too highly of himself because of what he owns. This person needs to see themselves as God sees them. And his boast should not be in stuff or in other, the other things that God has blessed him with, but instead his confidence and boasting should be in the same thing the poor man's is his position before a holy God. Should not exalt oneself in light of that. Matthew 23 12. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Why? Why should the rich man glory in his humiliation when trials come, especially? Because it reminds the rich man of the transient nature of things and their complete inability to give any kind of real, lasting satisfaction. Value, true satisfaction that can only be found in God. There's again a real danger of placing our trust in material things. But James says, don't do this. All of it is going to burn, it will be taken from you, it will pass away. He says in verses 10 and 11, because the flower and grass he will, will pass away for the sun will rise with a scorching wind and wither the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Riches, wealth, health, societal status, influence, all of it is fleeting. He says that the, the, the sun will come with a scorching wind. He's speaking of the grasses in Israel that would be quite lush and beautiful in the springtime. But when summer comes, they're burned away like my seedlings. We see Solomon express a similar sentiment in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. When he says, in the beginning of verse 10, "...all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had, had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was no profit under the sun." The rich man is to glory in his humiliation and trials because the loss of things are meant to drive them to Christ. In the end, the rich believer, the poor believer, all believers have the exact same eternal destiny. And it is greater than anything that this world can offer. The tendency of a rich man is to rely on wealth... But in the end, his fate is the same as the poor man's. There's an old saying which says, you never see a hearse driving with a U-Haul behind it. One commentator saying, faith in Christ is to supply his needs, lifts the lowly believer beyond his trials to a great height of a possession of the eternal kingdom of Christ, where as a child of God he is rich and may rejoice and boast. Faith in Christ is does an equally blessed thing for the rich believer, whose riches are temporary. It fills him with the spirit of lowliness and true humility. As the poor brother forgets his earthly poverty, so too the rich brother forgets his earthly riches. The two are equal by their faith in Christ. There is no comfort for a person who is facing trials in wealth. There is no way out of difficulty you cannot buy back things that are lost things like health or a loved one trials are life's great equalizer you cannot bribe or beg your way out of them trials reset the perspective of all who encounter them they bring God's children back to him money can never bring a person closer to god wealth And possessions can never bring a person close to their Savior. True saving faith allows a person to be matured in the midst of trials is the only way in order to do that. When God takes away physical possessions or good health from a person, it is for the sole purpose of making his children more mature, more like Christ. That blesses the person more than anything that they have lost as a result of a trial. Well, what's the end? We've seen the command given to the poor and the rich believer and it is the same command. Develop the eternal perspective of an all-encompassing joy that He first raised in verse 2. This joy that should never escape the believer no matter how dark the circumstances may be. We must always remember our position in Christ and what awaits us. That that is so important. Well, what is the gain? Verse twelve Blessed is he who perseveres under a trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord Himself has promised to those who love him. This is what it all comes down to. All the command James has given in these ten verses come down to this This is what awaits the person who passes the test of trials. This is why we have joy. This is why we allow ourselves to be matured. This is why we search for wisdom. This is why we cultivated a humble attitude. James says, blessed, that is, happy is the man who gets through a trial. Why? Because the Lord grants the crown of life. The purpose of a trial is to grow us. But it is also to serve by means of showing where our loyalties lie. Where we have placed our faith. Is it in God or is it in the world? Is it in the Savior or is it in our savings account? A person who makes it through a trial is someone who never lets go of their trust in God no matter what comes their way. By persevering, James says they are approved. Approved by God. They have passed the test, they've made it through the trial. And gaining God's approval, he grants them the crown of life. Now, this term for crown is not like a royal crown, like a diadem or that large thing that was on Queen Elizabeth's coffin last month. It instead refers to an athletic wreath which would have been given to an athlete who completed some kind of athletic event, a laurel wreath, for example. It is a symbol of persevering triumph. James calls it the crown of life. However, in the Greek, it's probably more accurately translated as the crown, which is life. This crown of life, meaning that this is none other than eternal life. I said it was a reward, but it's really more like a confirmation see, one cannot endure trials on their own. God puts them in our lives for a reason, and that is to confirm if our faith is genuine. But here's the important thing. It's not for God. He doesn't need to know if our faith is genuine. He didn't need to know if Abraham trusted him implicitly. He knew. You know who didn't know? Abraham. The purpose of trials in our life is for us to see our faith is real. By making it through trials, by maturing through them and getting to the end and facing another one and getting to the end and facing another one and making it through and so on, leaving a lifestyle of persevering with our faith intact, we can rest assured that our faith is genuine This is part of our salvation, the perseverance of the saints. If we were to fall away when faced with a trial, our faith would not be real. A commentator put it this way a more accurate statement of the principle is this Perseverance attests to God's approval, for it gives evidence of eternal life, that is, salvation. In other words, perseverance does not result in salvation. It is an evidence of salvation. If you are struggling to understand if your faith is real, look back on your life at the struggles and trials that entered it. Did you leave that trial with your faith intact? Well, what about the one that followed that one? The one that followed the next one? A life that has truly been transformed by the Lord will leave a pattern of trials that are conquered with a faith that is intact and not one that falls away and renounces the faith like the seed that is grown in the stony soil. Only someone who has experienced true saving faith can make it through a trial like this with their faith intact. This is both a sad reality and one that should bring immense joy. It is sad because of just how many people claim the name of Christ, yet when the rubber meets the road, when things get hard, when things get difficult, they walk away. But it is also a source of immense joy. Because if you can look back on your life and you can see that you are meeting trials and the Lord is carrying you through them and you get to the end and your faith is intact and with the next one and the one after that and the one after that all the while you're building this endurance and these mental Ebenezer's to look back on see God's faithfulness and you come to again the end of it and you see that your faith is still there you can take hope and have assurance that your faith is real. But this is all entirely a work of the Lord. It is not us. Left to our own devices, we would fall away too. But our God carries us through confirming for us the reality of our spiritual condition. And there is only one response to that. Love and worship of our great and holy God. I'm going to close in prayer and Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, we're so thankful, Lord, for your intervening in our lives, for the way in which you stretch us and grow us and mature us, Lord. I pray for each person here that we would walk through trials, that we would seek you in them, that even in some of the most horrific situations that we can be in, Lord, we would still have the knowledge that you are with us, that you have something better for us, that we are heirs with Christ, and one day, all of it, no matter how gruesome, will fade away when compared to the greatness of being a child of yours. pray this all in your Son's name. Amen.